Hello and welcome to episode 9 of The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that is on a never-ending quest to answer that simplest of all questions, what is The Thing About Golf? I'm Rod Murray, thanks for tuning in. If it's your first visit, welcome. We hope you enjoy and be sure to check out the archives for some of our other in-depth interviews. They include Barnboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler and two-time Australian Open winners, the Peters, Lonard and Senior, amongst others. There's a link in the show notes where you can find those other episodes or head to golfaustralia.com.au and click on the podcast tab. Also, if you like the podcast and think you know somebody else who might enjoy it, don't hesitate to share. We feel like we found a bit of a niche with this and we're keen to welcome as many like-minded golf fans as possible. If you'd like to get in touch with suggestions, comments or feedback, that's also welcomed. You can email us at golf at golfaustralia.com.au or find us on Twitter. I'm at at Rod underscore Mori, that's M-O-R-R-I, or the show has its own handle where you can send a message, that's at Thing Golf, capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. You'll also find the magazine on Facebook, just search for Golf Australia Magazine, or try the links in the show notes below. Now, regular listeners will know the drill for this podcast, which is to sit down with somebody from the world of golf and try to tease out some of the many and varied reasons that people have for falling in love with the game. So far on the series, we've spoken to players and publishers and even a golf course owner. But this month, we're taking a detour to the world of golf media. One of Golf Australia magazine's most popular columnists and contributors is Scottish-born golf writer John Huggan, a man known for not pulling punches no matter who the subject might be. John, or Huggy as he's almost universally known, is unashamedly old school. And for those of us who grew up in the world of newspapers in the 80s and 90s, he's a familiar figure. Unafraid to tackle any subject, no matter who it might bring him into conflict with, Huggy is often misunderstood as a writer who talks the game down or focuses on the negative. But that is a ludicrously unfair characterisation. Spend any time with the man and you'll understand that his love and passion for the game and what it can mean to and do for people is at least the equal of anyone in the industry. Golf has more than its fair share of cheerleaders, but John Huggan, one of the very best in the business, is not one of them and the game is better for it. I sat down with Huggy in the press conference area of the media centre at the Australian Open early on the Wednesday morning of tournament week, and in hindsight, that probably wasn't the best idea for sound quality. Planes flying overhead, wind rattling the tent, and early morning vacuum cleaners were just some of the intrusions we had to deal with, but hopefully they're not enough to take away from what was a fascinating discussion with a man that I think we could all learn a lot from. I hope you enjoy my chat with John Huggan. Well, John Huggan, uh, I'm looking forward to this, though I'm sure you're not. Thanks for taking some time. Anytime, anytime. Podcast is called The Thing About Golf. What's The Thing About Golf for John Huggan? Well, that's a big question. I'm not sure I've got a glib answer for that one. Um, the thing about golf was, uh, for me, uh, starting out, was um, I came from a, a little village in East Lothian. Um, there wasn't a lot else to do my my first golf course wasn't a golf course at all it was the the football pitch which was about 50 yards from my front door and I had an 18 hole course which I could still describe to you that went down the side of the pitch across the pitch down into the corner away from the pitch up to where the bonfire used to be every November 5th in the village <laughs> was this the first Huggins signature design indeed yes <laughs> the, the next hole was even better it went over the swings up towards the uh, you know place where the football team changed, then it was then there was the long hole which 
I look at it now and it's about a three quarter wedge, but it was a it was a two shotter for me back in the back in the day. How old so, were you? What age? Uh, I'd probably be seven, something okay. like that. My dad was very keen. He was a decent um, three handicapper at his best, so he kind of dragged me out there. Yeah. Um, I was a bad tempered little git when I was <laughs> young. I was too keen to be good uh-huh. too early and a bit temperamental, and there was clubs flying around and much tantrums and you know <laughs> I remember the getting to the, the point where at Winterfield Golf Club which is where I started to play par 65 course uh, on the edge of Dunbar if you got to 12 handicap they let you play in the senior competitions oh, okay. but you had to go out and put in scores that proved you could play to 12 and man I, the trouble I had getting that done <laughs> and the tantrums and the tears and the blood and the snot and all the rest of it it was. It wasn't pretty, but I did it eventually. So. Well, we'll come back to a bunch of the golf stuff in a yeah. moment. I guess outside Scotland, we have this romantic notion that it's the home of golf, and that every child is born into a house where golf clubs adorn the walls and the hallways, and mm. one can't help but have golf infused into the life. Is that true? Um, was it true for you? It was for me because of my father, I think. But um, I was definitely the odd one out in the village. I mean, I wasn't. We all played football. We, mm. you know, we went up and played football at night on the on the pitch that I just described. Um, there wasn't any golf really. Um, nobody, nobody of my contempor- direct contemporaries at the at the primary school, you know, which I attended till the age of twelve, um, were were into golf. Can really. you recall how the game was viewed by those who didn't play it? Was there any attitude <coughs> about golf? No, not really. I mean, it was accepted. Everybody knew that mm-hmm. you know, golf was a big part of the you know what went on. But football was the thing mm-hmm. for kids back when I was playing because we, we went up there and we played till it got dark and till after it got dark sometimes. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, the, the world's changed, unfortunately. I don't think kids would be allowed to be running around like uh, I was at that age. Let's not get into politics, shall yeah. we, Huggy, in the good old days <laughs> and this, that, and the other. Though I think everybody would empathise with what you're saying. Yeah. The world yeah, has it's no It's a shame, doubt. but it's the way it is, yeah. The world's changed in all sorts of ways. We're going to talk about some of those shortly, including yeah. in the profession that we've chosen uh, yeah. being writing. Back to the golf. So you talked about tantrums and temper and wanting to be good. <laughs> you got to a level that I think... I've heard got good players describe it all the time as you were decent. You were a decent player. Yeah, I mean, I was a good amateur. I mean, I, I played. Um, I won the Scottish Boys mm-hmm. Stroke Play Championship in 1977, and I won the match play. How old were you? 77. I was B. Actually, I, was, I turned 17 during okay. that event, and then I won the match play version, the Scottish Boys Championship in 1978. So I played for Scotland at boys level, youths level, which is under 22 or was then, and then senior level for four years in the early 80s. So, so that is a player, looking from the outside, who has all the tools and the potential to consider a professional career, which I assume you did at the time. It briefly crossed my mind. Um, I was, um, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I was too realistic. Uh, I knew exactly how good I was. And I played, uh, one of my contemporaries, who's slightly younger than me, still is, uh, was Colin Montgomery. I played in the same Scottish team with him and I played a lot of golf with him as an amateur in practice rounds and things. He was miles better than me. I mean, I was. In what way, Huggy? I mean, particularly for those of us who aren't particularly good, we watch pros and they yeah. all look unbelievably good. You can't pick the differences between them. In what way was he better? Well, he was odd. I mean, he's, a, he's not maybe, maybe not the best example because um, he went to America, to college in America at the end of what would be 1982, I think, which, mm-hmm. at which point he would be 19 years old, something like that. And he, at that time, he wasn't in the top dozen amateurs in Scotland. He wasn't in the Scottish team that for the home internationals, which was a Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales 
event every September round robin type thing. There was 11 players in each team. He wasn't in the team in 1982, or 83 it was. And he came back from America nine months later and I played a practice round with him and Philip Parkin, who'd won the amateur championship the year before. This was at Formby, uh, the days before the amateur championship in 1984. So I played with Colin Montgomery, Philip Parkin, the holder of the championship, and Colin Dalgleish, a friend of mine who went on to be Walker Cup captain, mm-hmm. played Walker Cup. Um, and Colin Dalgleish and I took the other two on, which you think now... <laughs> In hindsight. What were we thinking? <laughs> <clears throat> so we got we played about four or five holes, and I turned to Colin Dalgleish, and I can remember this to this day. I said, have you spotted anything? <laughs> and he went, yeah, she's, this guy's incredible. So Monty went from, in the space of 12 months, at the end of 83, he wasn't in the top dozen in Scotland, by the end of 84, he was not only the best player in Scotland, he was the best player in Great Britain and Ireland by a distance. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was incredible. I don't know what happened because, as I say, he was probably 20, 21 at that point. So and what, he usual just, time he just to hit it improved. further now? He hit it straighter, his short game was he better, did. his putting was better? Everything. All of everything. It. I mean, he, he was just playing a different game. Because it's Suddenly. such an incre- incremental game at that yeah. level, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the difference between shooting 63 and 73 is actually not much once you're good. It can be. But he, again, I'm, I'm not sure he's the best example no. because he's so extraordinary in, in so many ways. I mean, he, you know, he's such the, a unique sort of action. He's yeah. one of those golfers, isn't he, who does yeah. his own way. Yeah, and he had the same swing back then that he has now yeah. and the same temperament. Which you still he, wouldn't teach to anybody. That no, action. neither, neither yeah. one of those things. No, <laughs> that's exactly, but yeah, that's exactly but he, right. he was a hell of a player. And, Indeed, you know, went on to obviously a fantastic career. So, so you're immersed in that level of golf. Yeah, you've decided at this point, I guess, that probably a professional career is not for you. So, <laughs> when you've devoted that much of your life to getting that good, thinking probably all of that time, this is what I'm going to do for a living, and suddenly you realise this is not what I'm going to do for a living. What do you think? What do you do? Um, well, I was at Stirling University. I, I did a um, my degree is in business for. Reasons that still escape me. I'm guessing you might have failed, Huggy. Well, no, no, I've got I've got letters after my name which I've never used. But uh, I'd um, love to know. I'm a BA. A BA, fantastic. Well done, congratulations. Thank you. Um, Tiger never finished. Why I wasn't doing English, uh, which was the only thing I was any good at at school, um, I've no idea. But anyway, I did business, and in my last year at Stirling, I wrote to about fifty golf-related companies, saying, "Sort of, here I am," you know. Do you, so what sort of companies? So manufacturing right across shops, the board. Yeah, I mean, the, mostly in the media, I have to say, because okay. I kind of fancied that. And um, I got a letter back from Golf World magazine in uh, London saying, come and talk to us. We've got a job coming up. But so I went down to London. I think it was in, it would be February 1986 for the interview. Uh, it was in a restaurant just at Tower Bridge in London. Um, I remember walking out of that interview thinking, if I don't get that job, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> and I, du- I duly did, but I didn't start until June because I had exams to finish. And I, I did my last exam at Stirling on the Friday, uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, and I started in London on the Monday morning at Golf World. Talk about times changing. That is an unthinkable way for somebody to get a job these days, including just the minor detail of having an interview in a restaurant. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And very nice it was too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no doubt they paid, yeah. yes. which, would have yeah. been, uh, yeah. which would have been wonderful. You said that English was the only thing you were ever good at. Was it something, did you ever think to yourself, if not golf, then maybe writing? Because we'll come to writing and all those sorts of things I mean, soon. Strangely, no. I mean, it never crossed my mind. I mean, I, I've been... I'm kind of naive, I think, in many ways, because when I was at Golf World in London, uh, at the time, the magazine was owned by the New York Times uh, newspaper in in America. And at the time, they also owned Golf Digest magazine in the States. And so we had an exchange in the summer of 87 where 
an editor from Golf Digest came over to London for four months and two editors from Golf World took two months each in Connecticut at Golf Digest. And I wasn't actually going to be one of those two because I was the newest guy in. Mm, I was last in the door. But one of the guys who was going to go left um, for a new job the week before he was due to go to Connecticut. So the editor went, right, you're going. So I then had two months in Connecticut at Golf Digest where I basically played golf for two months. I mean, it was fantastic. Played On winged full f- pie. Exactly. <laughs> played winged foot, all kinds of places, Pine Valley, <laughs> wow. everywhere. And never once, I can honestly say it, never once did it cross my mind, there might be a job in this for me. <laughs> so I went back to London, and <clears throat> I think I was in Paris on an assignment for Golf World, and the phone rings, and it was Jerry Tardy, who's the editor of Golf Digest in the States, saying, there's a job here for you, do you want it? So I did, and I went. Why do you think, Huggy? There's any number of people that could be offered that job, probably people better qualified. But why well, you? Why did he ask you? That's I a, think interesting. The, the Scottish accent helps, uh-huh. definitely. The, the, I had instant credibility whether I knew what I was talking about <laughs> or not. And you could play, obviously, as well, which that, doesn't hurt. I, I don't think that hurt. I think yeah. that, and it certainly helped me with um, those two things, helped me with the players on the tour, because in the job I had, I was instruction editor, the, you know, the make you play better stuff. Yeah. Thanks very much, Huggy, for, yes, all, for exactly. all your help over well, the years. I do, I do like to say that my, when I arrived at Golf Digest, um, the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. And when I left eight years later, it was 17.8. <laughs> well, at least you didn't do any damage. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> all that effort for nothing. That's exactly right. <clears throat> but um, where was I? Um, so you got the job, and you think that the Scottish accent, the playing yes, of the golf yeah, the, was the, sort the of The fact sort of that I could play a bit, and uh, the Scottish accent definitely helped. And it, and it certainly helped on the tour because... I, on the American tour, I stood out. Yeah, they all remembered me because of my voice, if nothing else. Yeah. So, and to this day, I still know all the players that are now on the senior yeah. tour in America. I know just about all of them. Yeah. And and is there something in? I'm not a good player at all. I never have been. Is there something in? Is there an innate knowledge that you good players share that other good players recognise? So when you interview the top players, do they recognise in you? An understanding of the game at a level that I don't have and can never have. Well, I think you're tough to ask them, but I think um, I don't think it's a prerequisite to do the job that I did at Golf Digest. But I think it helps, yeah, because it does. They do look at you slightly differently. I remember being on the uh, on the range at um, at Bay Hill. Or, um, no, what's the place near Bay Hill in Orlando? Or, I don't know. I don't. Anyway, know. <laughs> I uh, live in Sydney. <laughs> Marco Mira lived there at the time, so we, I was I was his ghostwriter at, at Golf Digest, and uh, so we're, he was hitting balls, and his pal John Cook appeared, who also a tour player, and started giving me grief about how oh, you guys, none of you guys can play. You're hopeless. You're this. You're that. And and back then I could actually still play at that point. So um, Omira knew that. I, you know, Omira says, "Well, you know, John, you know, go ahead. Here's my one iron. Hit a shot." Just see it. Show, show John Cook what. So I did, and I killed. I actually hit a really good one. And Cook just, I can remember his face. He looked at me differently from that day. Fantastic. On. Wow. Yeah, so it does help, but I yeah. don't think it's a prerequisite. No, no, no. I don't think. But I, I just wonder, for those of us who've never been able to play any good, it feels like there's a secret society of players who can play a bit. Mm. That there's something you know that we don't, and I know that no. that's not true. No. But it, it feels like it's a bit of an exclusive yeah. club that we're never yeah. going to get into. And, and, and we I don't know mean it. to say, I mean, I wasn't that good. I mean, I was a good amateur. I wasn't anywhere near. You're better than most by a long way. Yeah, you I'm, weren't in the one percent, but probably the one and a half. Maybe, but um, I was never anywhere near tour level. No. I mean, I couldn't play at tour level. What are those levels? We know the increments are tiny, but if you hadn't been smart enough to realise you weren't good enough, mm. 
how much better would you have needed to get? Well, I think that I had it confirmed for me a few times. I played a you know a lot of golf with a really good amateurs who then turned pro. I mean, Roger Chapman and guys mm-hmm. like that. Who, you know, Gordon Brand Jr. I played a lot of golf with him. But um, the final confirmation I think was it was actually down here. I played in the Lake Macquarie Amateur. Oh, wow. Right? What year was that? Because that's been Eight, a fact. 1985. Yeah. It was a long time. Big and now. important tournament for a rubbish. long time. Yeah, I mean, well. hopeless. But, um, it was, mind you, it's a heavy week playing in that yeah, tournament. Big. There's a lot going on off the course, that, you know, <laughs> which we probably shouldn't talk After about. After we turn the microphones off, you can tell yeah, me about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the following week, I went to um, Launceston in, in Tasmania, and I played in the Tasmanian Open as an amateur. Mm-hmm. And I've actually, I've still got the medal. I was the second leading amateur in the Tas- 1985 Tasmanian Is that Open. Right. Who was the leading amateur? Craig Parry was oh, the leading well, there amateur. You go. Yes, but the the the, prob- the the final turning point for me was I played decently, not great, not my best, but I played all right. Um and one round I actually played with Payne Stewart's brother-in-law. Oh wow, Terry Gale. No, um Ferguson, his name oh, is. Oh sorry, Ferguson. Some yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yes, Ferguson. Um anyway, I finished there's a guy called Ian Roberts won it. Um, and Ian Baker Finch was second, one shot behind, but I was 20 shots behind the winner. Right. So I was about five shot, four or five shots around, around, worse than the winner of the tournament. And that was probably about my level. Yeah. You know? Which, which when you watch golf, isn't that much, four or five shots, but up every day, every, every day over four rounds. Yeah, they without have, fail every round. That's right. You know? They add yeah. up pretty quick, yeah. don't they? So you find yourself in this completely new world, the world of journalism, essentially, but not doing the traditional no, journalism no. apprenticeship, the cadetship. Were you naturally, Ready to write at that stage? Had you done um, much writing? Where does the writing well, bit come I, in? Well, I'd always been, as I say, I was decent at English. I'd won prizes for essays and all kinds of things at school without. And I never really thought about it. I mean, it's just something I could do. And, you know, it's like people who can draw, I think. they just You're getting annoying now, Huggy. They just Good do at it. golf and just can write. Well, you know, <laughs> I wasn't, uh, but I had a lot to learn um, when I got to Golf World about being a journalist, certainly. Um, there's a guy who was there at the time, Robert Green, who's um, he's probably semi-retired now. He was the assistant editor, and he was enormously helpful to me. I, he's got my everlasting gratitude for all the help he gave me with that side of things. Um, because for people I, yeah. who don't realise it, we'll talk about journalism and the media and where that's going at the moment, but back then it was a fairly simple world in that you're a journal, you wrote stories and you put them in the paper, but I'm not sure that people understand it's... It's more like a trade, like being a plumber or an electrician, being mm. a good reporter. I think journalism oversells it. It makes it sound like something much more noble than it is on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah. Producing news for people to consume is a really important job, but it's mm. one that's fundamentally not much different to being an electrician or a carpenter where you have to learn the steps because if you get one step wrong, yeah. the consequences can be enormous. Yeah, well, my, my father was a plumber uh, by trade, and uh, so maybe I learned a bit <laughs> about that side of things from him, but... Um yeah, uh, I, I mean, I look back now and I had so much to learn. I mm-hmm. remember the, going to Madrid, one of my first assignments, I went to Madrid to the Spanish PGA Championship at Club de Campo, and I had two assignments. Um, I had to do an instruction piece on short game with Jose Maria Alathabal, okay. which was easy because <laughs> yeah. he was yeah, fantastic. Right. I'll just sit here and take notes. Yeah, the harder thing was I had, a, I had to write a profile on uh, Jose Maria Canizares, mm. whose English wasn't fantastic to start with. Um, but I spoke to Lathabal and Pinero and all those guys, and that was the first story that I'd had to kind of craft by myself. And um, Robert Green was a huge help with that. He helped me with the lead in mm-hmm. particular, which, as you well know, is the hardest part Absolutely. sometimes. Uh, so I, I was a complete novice at, at, at the writing part of it. But going to Golf Digest was the biggest break I ever got in that respect. I mean, I, I was now working with 
not only on the instruction side, the best teachers and the best players in the world, but um, the editors. There were a couple in particular, a guy called Peter Andrews was the uh, features editor at the time, and he was by far the best writer on the staff and uh, the best editor as well. And he helped me a great deal. And over the course of eight years there, I just... I got better because I was mixing with the best people. So you sat at the feet of the masters in many Absolutely. ways, didn't you? Well, at the masters. You should say that. Yeah, you, <laughs> I, I maybe told you this story before, but um, one of the great things about being at Golf Digest was was mixing with people like that. And the house we stayed at in Augusta every year was the Jernigan House, was the family name. It was the most gaudy building. But anyway, in the evenings, there was a big table, and I used to just sit in the corner, and round that big table would be Dan Jenkins, you know, Dave Marr, Dave Anderson, Pulitzer Prize winner Dave Anderson from the New York Times, Frank Hannigan from the USGA, Tom Callahan, Peter Anzus would be there, and they would just sit there and try and outdo each other in telling wow. stories. I wish I'd taped it now, but yeah. it was fantastic. Because they are legitimately royalty, those people. People Absolutely. read their things and don't give yeah. much thought, and they enjoy them, but they don't yeah. give much thought to yeah. the talent that's going into I guess oh. only those of us who are interested yeah. I mean, these, see that. These are the gods of our industry. Yeah. These, you know, Genuinely. Callahan, legitimate. Jenkins, Dave yeah. Anderson, I mean, the, yeah. the very best. Yeah. Is it important what we do, Huggy? Writing about the game? Well, doing you can podcasts argue, you about can the argue game? that endlessly. I mean, is, is, is any game important? I don't I mean, mean the game. What yeah. we do in covering the game, is it important? Um, I think it is if for the people that are interested. I think we've got a duty to tell them as much as we can, you know, what's going on. Um, there is a, a downside to that, and you've probably found that in your career as well. I remember my father asking me um, years ago, he said, um, what's the worst part of your job? And I said, I don't have any heroes left. Mm-hmm. I know too much. I've seen them up close, and they're just people. They're, just, they're, they're people with a great talent, but they're just people. It's incredibly disappointing on many levels, isn't it? It, it can be, <laughs> yes. And I, I, I probably shouldn't go into some of that. But yeah, they, there are people that I've been in hugely disappointed in. On the other hand, there have been others that I've, I, I admire hugely even more than I did before. Mm-hmm. It's a funny world that those people live in. We get an interesting peek into it, don't we? Because we work for wages or used to in the good old yeah, days for yeah. normal sorts of wages and have normal lives with mortgages and whatnot and yet not on a daily but a weekly basis sit and talk and move in a world with people yeah. for whom that is not life they have their own planes yeah. multiple houses in multiple different countries and i they are people but it's a different world they live in danger i wonder whether should we judge those people differently, particularly when you think about somebody, let's use Rory as an example, who I think is one of the good guys of world Yeah, he is. Mid-20s, financially, his life was not only set, a life of opulence and luxury awaited him, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Had he broken a leg and never played golf again, that was the case. I wonder what that does to a person and how it forms them as people. I think Rory would be, he would admit to this. I mean, he's not the same guy that I I first met Rory when... uh, First, wrote, I wrote a profile of him when he just won the, the silver medal in the Open at Canusti when uh, Harrington won. 07. Yeah. That was, and I went to Dublin, uh, I went to Belfast <laughs> to see him. Um, <laughs> went to his golf club, sat in the, the lounge at his golf club just Ho- to tell Hollywood? Hollywood? Hollywood, yeah. Um, not the greatest golf course in the world, which shows you that you don't have to be the. No, that's right. You know, the you the don't country do, club, not, not necessarily the best place to produce not. good players. I'm, I'm sure it's a, a, a really nice club because it's a kind of working class, hmm. you know type of place I grew up in. I felt comfortable I'm there. sure they gather in front of the TVs to this day every oh, time he's playing um, somewhere and has the full support of a thousand members yeah, of that club. I have absolutely no doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, he came from nothing, really. Yep. I mean, his father and his mother worked job, umpteen jobs to yep. give him the chances that, he's, that he took. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's not the same little kid, innocent little kid that he was then. I mean, I don't see if Rory was ever that innocent, but he was. There was a char- there's still a charm about yeah. Rory. I mean, he, people are drawn to him. He's enormously attractive to kids, I'm sure, for autographs and things. But he's not the same guy. I mean, he, he couldn't be. He's 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 lived in a world that's you know, no no one could ever stay the same no. doing that. I mean, people ask me. You know how do I get on with Rory? And I I get on fine with Rory. I I like Rory enormously, and I I think um, he still talks to me, so he must have you know there must be something there. But I get on much better with his father. Uh-huh. His father's ex- pretty much exactly the same age as me. He's from pretty much the same background. He was a low handicap golfer. We, we've got he and I have got an awful lot in common, and he and I talk you know you know hundred to the dozen. I mean it's, it's every time I see him, and I've now um, my wife is the is the first ever female director of Forfar Athletic Football Club oh. in Scotland. And she's met Jerry. We, mm-hmm. we sat with the, the two, Jerry and his wife in a bar. We bumped into them at the Open in 2011 and we sat and had a couple of drinks. So Jerry now knows my wife. And he's now a Forfar Athletic, a closet Forfar Athletic fan. <laughs> he's even got the hat. He's Did got, you just uh, out him? Is yeah. that going to cause trouble well, for no, him? No, no, no. <laughs> he, he follows the results. I mean, he, every time I see him, he got, he, the first thing he says is something like, oh, terrible result at Stranraer last week. <laughs> so, you know, I've turned so him. I've, I've turned him. And I, I was standing talking to him at the PGA in America, at the back in the media, but after Rory's round. And uh, we had our backs. Rory came up behind us. And, and Rory oh, he says, I know what you guys will be talking about. Four for Athletic. And we were. And we were. So, you know. That's so boring. And his yeah. mates are just as bad. Some exactly. of them have to work in the so, golf press. Yeah. Is it important, desirable or not desirable, that players maybe do like you um, in the job? I've, I've never worried. I know you too, don't care. But no, I've <laughs> never worried too much about that because, I, you know, in our business, I mean, I think there's an awful lot. Uh, I get accused of being controversial or, or negative or thing. And I think uh, talking I'm, the game down. Uh, yeah, I, d- I don't think I'm either one of those things. I'm, but maybe I am in relation to a lot of the people who do what we do. I think the I do think that the especially the the golfing establishment and and probably the players as well. They get a fairly easy ride from us. I don't think we're Woodward or Bernstein, any of us really. <laughs> no. Um, but you know, I I've, I've been known to to stick it to people now and again when I think they deserve it. And I I always come back to a line that. Um, Tom Callahan told me when uh, he did a story on Larry Bird, the basketball player in America for Time magazine. And Bird, during the research for that, asked Tom what he tries to achieve with a story. And Tom gave him the answer. He said, um, I try to be fair to you and true to me. And that's what I try. I, I kind of aspire to that. Because uh, after the, when that story ran, uh, a scrap of paper arrived in the mail at Tom Callahan's house. Just an odd scrap of paper on it was written from Larry Bird, fair to me. That was all it said. Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. That's, well, that, that's a, yeah. that's quite the achievement. Yeah. Uh, it probably doesn't mean anything to most people, but I think about that. Yeah. I remember Lorne Rubenstein <clears throat> said something very similar to me yeah. on a podcast once. Mm-hmm. That if he can look in the mirror each day yeah. and be comfortable with what he's written, because the pressures to write things you might not be comfortable with are not small, are they? Well, I think we all have to do that. I mean, uh, you know, we have to bite our tongues a fair bit. I think um, there's places you can't go, which rightfully, I mean, the, there's laws to protect people from stuff like that. And I'd, I'd hopefully, I've never come anywhere close to that. You know, this kind of this is a bit of a tangent. It kind of brings into question the whole Tiger incident of people. There were all sorts of accusations made about all sorts of people, mm-hmm. and that we, our collective brethren, as the golf press, covered up for Tiger. I don't think that was true. But if it was, is that wrong? 
Um, These are thorny issues, aren't they? Is his personal life of any interest or business of golf writers or their readers? Yeah, well, I don't think we're employed to, to really write about that stuff. I mean, before the, the all blew up for Tiger, which was, again, just after he won the Aussie That's Masters. Another career ruined by Australia. Yes. And <laughs> Kingston, was it Kingston Heath? I think Kingston it was. Heath, yes. That's an right. amazing golf he played and, that week. Uh, I remember at that time I, I'd heard rumours about some girlfriend, you know, somewhere, but... Um, that was all I, all I knew at that And point. in fairness to us, you hear rumours almost daily about every other player and a girlfriend yeah. somewhere or yeah. a baby somewhere right. or yeah. something they've done or a yeah. waiter they've stiffed or a bill they haven't yeah. paid. And I mean, you know, call me rumors, cynical, but I think it, it would be surprising if, um, if that sort of stuff wasn't going on given the lifestyles that these guys have. I mean, they're away from home a lot. In hotels, there's lots of attractive women. I'm sure, you know, no shortage of money. Exactly. So there's, there's a lot of com- you know factors involved, which is why our wives are glad we're underpaid. Huggy. Well, that's true. I don't think my wife worries too much about that. You know? <laughs> that that, uh, that they would either. Speaking of Tiger, you've been in the business a long time before Tiger, and a long time since Tiger. And it almost feels like there's a line there. What's been his impact in your eyes? Because you, of course, lived. You had. I know you had the great privilege of interviewing Sevy. Once mm. I'll get you to talk about that, but mm. we had Seve and we had Norman and we had Faldo and Lyle and Nicholas and some of the big American stars. It felt like golf changed with Tiger. Did you sense that as it happened? And looking back, um, some thoughts on Tiger and his impact. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's um, he was the first golfer who has ever been the most famous sportsman on the planet, and I think it'll be a long time before another golfer can say that. I mean, I think for a long time it was probably the world heavyweight boxing champion who had that. Um, but never a golfer. I mean, Jack Nicholas, Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, you know. Big in America, icon, but. Great icons in our game, but never the most yeah. famous sportsman in the world. Um, he, he went way beyond that. Um, and he plays, he played golf, I think, better than anybody's ever played golf. I mean, his, his best golf was the best golf we've ever seen. Quite better, staggering. Better than Nicholas's best. Quite staggering, isn't it? When you, yeah. and to go back and watch, I feel like we forget his, Brilliance was so brilliant that we forget how unbelievable yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, the one I feel sorry for is Ernie. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I mean, he was the second best player at the time. He was, and they were really the only one that stepped up consistently. Yeah. Phil Mickelson didn't. No, I mean, he never has. He kind of just disappeared in the background until Tiger went into a little bit of a dip, and Phil obviously thought to himself, "Oh, he's he's beatable again." But when Tiger was at, the, at his best, mm. only one guy took him on. In any way, and that was Ernie. They gave him a couple of very good fights. There was Absolutely. that tournament at Kapalua yeah. that they went ahead to the President's Cup where they, he held a putt in the dark, if I recall, Ernie to yep. square, um, and the thing ended up Ernie, tying. Nobody, I think Ernie gets a bit underrated almost. I Without mean, doubt. He was, Ernie was fantastic. And, Ernie and, still is fantastic. He's still, here this week, funnily enough. He is still I, fantastic. I went out yesterday and watched him for half an hour on the range yeah. just because I like to watch him. Yeah, you know, it's a cathartic so. thing, isn't it? You Absolutely. can watch it. You feel yeah. better about the world and everything. the pace yeah. of everything improves yeah. when you watch and Ernie. I, and I like Ernie enormously. Honestly, and I, you know, he's um, he's always been nice to me. He gives me time, and um, as you know, in our business, if you can forgive a man a lot if he gives you half an hour. <laughs> if you if you can bypass a manager and talk to oh, a player, that player yeah, goes yeah. up let's in estimation. Not go in there. Yeah. Well, now let's go there. Let's talk yeah. about that. So that side of the business, one of the things I think that happened with Tiger, all the money that came into golf brought with it. The middlemen. Historically, mm. humans have loved the notion of a middleman, the person who actually does nothing, yeah. but find a solution to a problem that doesn't exist and then sell the problem to people so that they can sell, then sell them the solution. Talk a little bit about the changes in that way. There was a time, I imagine, when you started, and I know Mike Clayton talks about this, where if you wanted to talk to a player as a journal, you walked onto the range, you walked up and then said, G'day, how are you going? Got a minute for a chat? Or if not, now, when? Yeah. That's well, not the case anymore. Well, I, Yeah, I mean, I still do that a lot. 
Um, you do? Yeah. You're royalty. Well, no, no, no. no. <laughs> but as, every chance I get, I do that. Maybe it's the best way to put it. And uh, any time that you have to go through the agent, unless you know the agent particularly well, there's a potential for disaster. I mean, uh, a lot of times I've caught the, the, caught the agent out, not personally, but um, I've, I've gone to the agent with a proposal for doing something with a player, and he's gone, no, no, no that's never going to happen. And I've bumped into the player subsequently and said, oh, sorry, you couldn't do that. And, it, and the player knows nothing, nothing about, about it. it and yeah. would have done it. Yeah, happily. Would have been happy to do it. Would so have enjoyed that, it, perhaps. That's <laughs> the great frustration with agents. They, yeah. they, they're there to protect, or they think to protect, in inverted commas, their you know employees or their charges or their employer. Um, well, let's but they're be honest, not really. their meal ticket. Yeah, they, that's the well, truth of that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. But they, they get in the way. It's as simple as that. But that's kind of their job, isn't it? At a, at a certain level, that's kind of necessary. Is it? You, you, Adam Scott, Tiger Woods, Rory, they li- they literally could not run without some sort of middleman oh, to absolutely. deflect. Yeah. I get that. But, I mean, it, it, there comes a point where if you've done it as long as I have, the, the players that I've known a long time, they know that I'm not going to be hanging around bothering them just for the sake of you know standing on the range chatting I, I don't do that I mean I go up and as you say I say how are you doing got time whenever to do whatever I need to, and they go fine yeah or nay and off I go you know that there's no hero worship in me no. I mean I just I'm just doing the job yeah even beyond that Huggy that, that comes back to I think part of that the electrician the plumber thing that's part of the trade isn't it understanding your role isn't to stand around it, I don't, you don't go out of your way, but people say to me, oh, you know, you must know a lot of the players and get to them, and quite, but I don't. It's not my job to be friends well, with players. Yeah, I know them, but I don't know no, them. No, that's right. Yeah. I don't pretend yeah. to be friends with them. I don't want to be friends yeah. with them. Yeah. There's a couple of players I've got to know who I really like personally. Yeah. yeah. Not huge superstars, but people, and a lot of people get into this business wanting to be a yeah. part of the thing. Absolutely. It's not our job, you, is if it? You, if you set out to, to be their friend, in inverted commas, you're never going to be their friend. No. I mean, I, I have players you know who are my friends but that that just has happened has happened naturally you know i mean i've caddied in tournaments for greg turner and peter o'malley and katrina matthew um just because they're pals of mine yeah you know and it's um mind you they all turn into monsters when they're on the golf course <laughs> don't ever be but, a caddy uh, kids <laughs> no but um but yeah that that just that's it should just evolve if you set out to be their friend you're never going to be their friend believe me yeah, indeed uh Quickly, I want to get a list from you. Who are the good guys? I won't ask you about the bad guys. Who have been the good guys over the years? And then we might move away from professional golf because it's not really golf, is it? Um, well, I'm biased. I mean, uh, when I was – I started out um, at Golf World and I was on the European Tour a fair bit. Um, I was – I became friendly with Greg Turner through uh, Dennis Pugh, who coaches mm-hmm. – um, And he's a fantastic podcast uh, guest, by the way. Absolutely. Both yours and ours. Dennis on. is a great friend of mine. Yeah. And I met Greg through him. He was coaching Greg at the time, Greg Turner. And then I meet Peter O'Malley, and a lot, I was kind of drawn towards the the Antipodeans. I mean, they, they seem to have the same kind of temperament as the Scots, and blunt, a lot in forward. You never in doubt what they yeah, think. <laughs> I had a lot of com- um, a lot of dinners on the European tour with Greg and uh, Thomas Googler, the German lad who, oh, okay. who played the tour at the time. He and I, we were the only three that we could really find that had politics that were left of centre uh-huh. on the tour. Oh, well, yes. we, find, we found that we had nobody else to talk to. So we, where was Clayton? Um, well, I didn't know him then. <laughs> I didn't meet Mike. He was, he was probably sitting in a corner somewhere wondering if there were any other leftists anywhere on the tour. No, well, I didn't meet Mike Clayton until uh, 2002 at the New Zealand Open, the one that Tiger played in. That was oh, the first okay. time I ever met Mike. 
when the New Zealand Open really started. Uh, it was an, that was an incredible week. Yeah, Turner I mean, was far from happy with events that week, wasn't well, he? Well, he was. I was staying with him, uh, and it was hilarious. The, I mean, I laughed and laughed. Um, and the pro am day, Greg was. It was a shotgun start, so he was teeing off somewhere out in the course. Somewhere. So he was jogging out to whatever tee it was, uh, to, and was rugby tackled from behind <laughs> by a security guard. Jesus! The security was nonsensical Christ, because yeah. of Tiger. In fact, there was players. When Tiger appeared in his car to, to go in the entrance, there were players locked out. They, they couldn't go in the entrance. So I remember standing in the queue to go in through the public entrance beside Roger Chapman from England, uh, who was a player Playing in, the in the tournament and was having to queue up to get in because Tiger had just arrived. That's madness. And, of course, Tiger gets the blame for that, but that's got nothing to do with him, has it? No, no, not a thing. The, the, the funniest part of that thing was that there was a buggy with a, you know, guard security men what were they worried about? New Zealand's the most peaceful country on earth. And there was rifles sticking out Jesus. the back of this golf bag on the back. There was, you know, with head covers on them and things. It was absolutely Just hilarious. That was sort of the peak Tiger Mania, wasn't it? Yeah. Of, of Tiger Mania 1. Yeah. And Tiger Mania 2 uh, as well. Uh, I was going to ask you something, but then I completely forgot. We'll come back to that. Let's move away from professional golf because it really is a tiny part of golf, isn't it? It dominates the media, yeah. but it really is a small part of golf, isn't it? Well, tiny. I mean, it's it, and if professional golf disappeared tomorrow, I'm not sure it would make that much difference to your golf club or my golf club. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so in that sense, what's the more important thing for us to cover? I, I feel like the media has changed in a lot of ways, and one of the ways is we talk a lot more about golf that isn't professional golf now because we've got the space to do it. We didn't used to do that in magazines in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. We with podcasts and blogs and those sorts of things. We talk about all sorts of things to do with golf. Broadly, what's your take on what's the state of golf now, right now in 2019? Um, well, golf expanded a lot. I mean, in popularity because of Tiger, I think we went from two out of 10, say, to eight out of 10. And I think we're, we're gradually drifting back to two out of 10 in the wake of Tiger. I'm not is sure that, that right? Is I'm that where not sure golf that, belongs? Well, I'm, that's my point. I'm not sure that that's such a bad thing. I mean, maybe that's just what golf is. It's a niche sport. It's never going to be a game for everybody, A, because it's difficult, and B, because uh, this is something I'm not a big fan of, is the golf club system in itself is, by its very nature, is exclusionary more than inclusive. Club. And <laughs> The word club means exclusion, doesn't and, it? And, you know, it drives me nuts that the, the wasted opportunities that golf clubs have spurned over the years, but now they're, they're kind of suffering because things have changed and... The golf club system isn't really fit for purpose anymore. There's people spending their money in different ways, and they're not joining clubs. They're playing everywhere rather than one place. And, and certainly in Scotland, where I live, um, there's a few courses of closed clubs have disappeared in the last couple of years. Thankfully, to my mind, and nobody ever says this, but I will, um, they're bad golf clubs. Bad golf courses are closing. There's too many golf courses in Scotland for a country with a population of five and a half million. So it's it's going back to maybe what it should be. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in that, but that's what it looks like to me. We're a part of the golf business, which I feel split about because I don't feel like golf should be a business. Golf is something more than that to me, but the reality is it's also business. The problem isn't with the game, is it? It's with the business model, if there is a problem at all. Well, you know, my friend Tom Callahan, who we mentioned earlier, um, he has a line that, he says um, he loves the game, hates the people. <laughs> now, hates a very strong word, but, yeah, but I, I know what he means. I, I do too. You know, the, some of the people in golf drive me nuts. I mean, there's an awful lot of elitism, 
snobbery, you know, you're not, you don't belong here stuff, too, far too much of that. And, of course, the danger with that, Huggy, is that's the perception for the most part of non-golfers, that's, isn't it? That's the image. I mean, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at St. Andrews to interview Martin Slumbers, who's the head guy at the, the R&E. He must have looked forward to that for weeks, Huggy. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, you'd be surprised how much common ground there is. But anyway, um, and that was one of the things I asked him was, uh, is the R&E's image or has the R&E's image been a problem for the game over the years? And they've... They've made great strides in terms of um, they split the golf club from the corporate side of the business and their their staff is much younger now than it used to be. But my point to him was, well, I agree, all of that's true, but you haven't told the world enough. You need to advertise yourselves a bit more and, and you know blow your own trumpet. And they haven't done that nearly enough, but they're, they're getting there, but they've got a long way to go. Is part of the problem that we've got such a healthy internal golf media system that we forget to talk outside of it. You could spend your whole life if you were a golf administrator and and speak to a thousand reporters and not one of them would necessarily come from an organisation outside of golf. Yeah, that's that's entirely true. And It's madness, yeah, isn't it? We become uh, too inward looking. You know, it, it's, golf's notorious for that. I mean, another thing I talked to Slumbers about was... Um, if you started golf again tomorrow, you, you, the system for running the game wouldn't be anything like it is now. I mean, it's an alphabet soup of acronyms out there. I mean, there's so many organizations all kind of getting in their own way, you know, or each other's way. It, and it doesn't work. You know, it's as simple as that. It's a favorite theme of yours, this, if you start it again. You, I hear you say it quite often about lots of different things. Yeah. So of course, we can't start no, again. But a, yeah. is it possible to get to the nirvana of, had we started this way, it would have been better, but now we've finally got here? Well, I think it helps to point out what that nirvana is. Absolutely. Um, and Because you'd be amazed how people never think of it. You know, we, uh, I like, well, at least I try. This sounds a bit pompous, but I try a lot of time when I write to try and make things better in the game, which is why I... I in, Conversely, I get accused of being negative because to do that, you have to point out what's wrong and here's how it can be better. I always try and be constructive in the criticism, but... So it's not just that this is wrong. Huggy always gives you a, I and this it, is how you could perhaps I make it better. I want it to be better. I want everything to be better. And that's really where I, my starting point for a lot of pieces. Yeah. Let's talk about writing because it's a whole other field, isn't it? People devote their entire lives to writing. You said writing was sort of natural for you. You've become an extraordinarily good writer, one that lots of people... Uh, no. well, you see, don't you start? It's nice of you to say that, <laughs> but I mean, I, I've been around people like Tom Callahan, who's my one of my closest friends and the, the best writer I've ever known. Um, so what does that mean then, Huggy? Oh, he's, What's I mean, good writing? He's... He, well, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's like when you see somebody do anything really well, they make it look so, so easy. easy. <laughs> and you think, well, why, do, why can't I write like that? And, but he, he's he's... You know, I'm. I can't speak high, highly enough of him. I mean, he's you know, and he's helped me hugely as well. He, he's great with advice. I send him things that I've written, and, and he, still to this day, absolutely. And, he, and wow. he, just now and again, I mean, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, course, he yeah. points out, you know, well, you could have done this, and you know, which is wow. great, you know, because he makes me think in a way that I I haven't been doing. So to me, I think they're the three key words. Makes me think just on the good writers and the annoyingly good writers. Yeah. I find Clayton is a beautiful writer about yes, the game. Beautiful yeah. writer. I remember once I think I tweeted this. Maybe one of the best things I think I've ever written. 
we've all got access to the same words. How does he put them together so much better than me? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't again, have any words that I don't have. Th- that's the, <laughs> but, the X factor, isn't it? I mean, yes. uh, and Dan Jenkins is another one. Sadly, no longer, no yeah. longer with us. But um, I knew I knew Dan really well. I mean, because I was around him a lot at Golf Digest, and I can't remember what major it was, but uh, you know, he, he was out. I bumped into him. I'd been at the the loo probably, and I was coming back into the media center, and he was standing outside having a cigarette. And he was just kind of, you know, contemplating the meaning of life and staring into space. And I said, oh, hello, Don. Dan, how how are you getting on? What are you doing? He goes, I'm writing. You know, and that was him just thinking about what he was going to do. The preparation was the key. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. The more more time you think about it, the more time you put into it, the better it's going to be, mostly. Yeah. And do you devote a lot of time and thought to writing and improving your writing and being better at it? I try, but it's um, the way my life, working life has gone in the last few years, and I'm sure you'll, you know, empathize with this, is that I've just been churning stuff out more and more. Like a sausage to, factory. To survive. So the preparation and the thought, frustratingly, has not been there to the same extent. And I think I've written some absolute rubbish the last few years, probably, because I just haven't had the time to put the proper amount of effort into it. Are you at your best, do you feel, with your writing when you sit down and it just comes out quickly? Or are you one who wrestles with a piece and panel beats it until it's what no, you wanted at no, the end? No, I'm, I'm pretty quick. Um, I'm, again, one of my, again, one of my closest friends and favourites is Jaime Diaz, who's now at the Golf Channel. Which uh, is a tragedy for all oh, of us who read yeah. about golf because he no longer writes he, about it. I thought he was, he was the best at what we do yeah. that was full-time golf. Yeah. Because uh, Tom Callahan, for example, is a sports writer. Does all sorts of stuff, yeah. Behind me, he was wonderful. Um, and I remember I was sitting next to him uh, on a Sunday night at a major in America when I was, I was, as you put, the, the, the sausage factory. It was a Sunday night. He was sitting there beside me with his laptop doing his one piece for that on that day. And he, he, I mean, he turned to me and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm halfway through the second of four pieces <laughs> that I've got to write on the same subject. For four different, you know, and that was the only reason I could get to that tournament was to, was take to do four all different that, jobs. Was to do all that, and I, there is no way that any one of those four stories was as good as I could make it. No, because I was churning it out. I was on a deadline, and I had to get it done. And he he looked to me as if I was mad, but I think you know he had a new appreciation for the world that I was living in. You know, there's a luxury about that, obviously, for him. But it's the reader that ultimately misses out, isn't it? Well, hopefully, yeah. I mean, yeah. Again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my stories would have, story would have been better if I'd only had to do one, you know. How do you find a story, Huggy? What's your sort of, so let's say I said to you, Huggy, I'll give you a thousand bucks. I want you to go out and do me a profile on Adam Scott. And you can get access to him. You well, can talk to him. That's, once you've got that, that's the easy part. I mean, uh, I'm not the greatest reporter and I'm not the greatest guy coming up with the, the ideas. But once I've got the... The brief. Once I know where I'm headed, I, I'm, you know, I, I know exactly what to do, but... The hard part for me is, is is dreaming up the story, really. Yeah. And how we've talked about how the media has changed and what, and you've probably given us an outline there. When you first started, you worked for one place and they paid you a decent amount of money and you you did your job. I didn't know I was living when I was at Golf Digest. Well, we, we never worried about money back then. That's right. But know? we do now, don't we? Yeah. Is that healthy? Um, well, I suppose it is in a way. I mean, it's, uh, it gives you a new appreciation for for the, you know, the, the nice side of life, working life. But... Um, because you could do something else, Huggy. I mean, there's a bunch of work involved in organising four different 
publications to take four different stories yeah. to give you the opportunity to go and be a part of yeah. the tournament. You yeah. could be a postie or a bus driver. Or... Well, I've always fancied being a postman. I know you yeah. have. That's yeah. Why yeah. I mentioned I'd, it. I'd be quite happy I, being a postman. I quite like the idea of it too, to be yeah. honest with but you. I've become a bit of a wheeler dealer the last few years, and I'm an expert at getting cheap flights, and I've stayed in some absolutely grotty hotels, and Uber's so why, a wonderful thing. why do thing. you do it? Well, is I, there something that, inside? That thought has crossed my yeah. mind more than once. Like, are you driven? If perhaps? I'm in a Motel Six in St. Louis, as I was last year or the year before for the PGA, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? How did it Why come to this? Why am I doing this? Yeah, in my time of life. I mean, I'm 60 next year. I mean, this is not what I had in mind for my working life back in the day. But I was spoiled back in, on the other side of that. Well, I was spoiled at Golf yeah. Digest. I mean, if we. Um, photographer Dom Farrar, my great friend, he and I were the sort of a team on the instruction pieces. If we flew from uh, Connecticut to Los Angeles to do a piece with somebody and the weather was bad or it was a bit cloudy, we didn't do it. We came <laughs> home and we went back and did it again. Oh. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> they don't. You know, but that's that was the world we lived in back then. So is there somewhere in John Huggan, is there a need that even perhaps you don't want to acknowledge that you really want to be a part of this circus? That's why you work so hard to remain a part yeah, of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I love golf. Um, I've loved golf, you know, from the beginning, and I still love golf, even if I don't play it very much now, but partly because I, you know, I hadn't have had time, really. I mean, uh, I got divorced about 20 years ago, and I had two young kids, and I basically stopped playing for about six years because all I did was work and look after them. That was what I did. See, life happens, doesn't it? Away from gets in the way. Gets in the way. It's what so, happens while you're doing other stuff. And I've never been half the player since then that I was before that. You know, so I blame my ex-wife really. For yeah, that. that's right. <laughs> put it in the put it on the list of things that you no doubt <laughs> yeah, blame yeah, her for. Yeah. Uh, and does that bother you? Would you like uh, to, no, really, to be no, playing? I, um, I've said this to people many times, and and I I absolutely mean it. I, I'm being hundred percent honest. I found out how good I was. There's no mystery in the game for me, which is part of the reason why I don't think I play very much. And I don't play nearly as well. And I still think like a good player, but I don't play like a good player. Do you enjoy playing or has it become something you don't enjoy doing anymore? I enjoy hitting shots. I still go and hit balls now and again at driving ranges and things. And I enjoy that. I enjoy the the artistic side of it, which is harder to do with the equipment. Um, you can't shape shots. You know, I still go out and play with persimmon woods and things because that's more fun. I'm at the stage now where I want to enjoy it, and if that's the fun for me, I don't. I never add my score up. I've no idea what I score, and it's irrelevant. I don't. I, had, I haven't had a handicap in 20 years either. No. So in the grand scheme of things, it actually doesn't matter what anybody shoots, professional no. or otherwise. But no. it certainly doesn't matter what John Huggins shoots no. on a, a social nine holes. Absolutely not. On an evening no. in Dunbar. No. We're sitting here in a media centre at Australia. You probably hear the planes going over, and they're vacuuming. It's early in the morning. You spend a lot of your life in these sorts of places. Are they a comfortable place for you? They're very utilitarian, aren't they? This is a, a temporary yeah. building that's been knocked. It's an impressive temporary building, but it's still a temporary building. What about yeah. that as a lifestyle? Well, I, um, I don't really think about you know too much about the the surroundings. I like it's the people that mm -hmm. make or break it for me. I mean, I, I, I I've been coming down here for a long time now, and um, I've got some good friends here. I think, and and I enjoy being around you. I mean, it's. Uh, there's something about Australians and the attitude to sport, I think, that which I'm drawn to. It's, it's similar. It's a bit to, Scottish. It's a bit Scottish it and Irish. It's very a, similar. Which yeah, is not but, a surprise given yeah. the stock that, yeah. that came here and made it up. What's the future for this game of ours, Huggy? Here in Australia and globally, your own home country has probably got... Well, I think it's going to have to adapt. Um, there's so much more competition now. 
kids don't do what I did. They don't have the. They go up to the football pitch in West Barnes, the, the village where I'm from, and play football at night till it gets dark anymore. That doesn't happen. They're not um, cycling up to Winterfield Golf Course in the morning, sit, playing with their mates for playing 72 holes in a day with their mates, like I did in the summer holidays. I mean. I, I don't see kids doing that anymore. So, are they doing it with other sports? I think is, are we just part of a general move away from yeah, that I, outdoor I, activity? I, I haven't researched this, and I, but I have to believe that every sport's in the same position. I mean, there'll be fewer people playing. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, before I let you go, I need you to tell us two stories, which are particularly favourites of mine that you uh-huh. tell. When you encountered Lee Trevino and really fell in love with the game, I think of the nineteen seventy three Ryder Cup. Yeah, yeah. And well, I'd seen him before that, but yeah. But, and yeah. it was at Andres, uh, Roberto De Vincenzo and your interaction uh, with him. So well, you can pick the order you tell them. Well, but chronologically, um, Roberto De Vincenzo would be first. Um, the first Open Championship uh, I ever went to in person was in 1970 at St Andrews. I would be nine going on, my birthday's at the end of July, so I'd be nine going on ten. It was early July 1970. So my father and I walked around, you know, for a week, and I had uh, I've still got my little green autograph book. I've um, seen it. Yeah, I can confirm. It's, there's a lot of famous names yeah, in there, very. a lot of dead people, sadly. But um, Roberto being one, um, but I, I stopped him. I was only about half his height, maybe if that. Um, I stopped him for an autograph, and he, I can still see him looking. He looked down at me, and he goes, "You know my name?" And I'm looking up, and I said, "Roberto, Roberto," and he goes, "Ah," and he. He clapped my cheeks with his hands, and then signed my book and and walked off. And to, you know, he had a fan for life. Yeah. Just the little thirty seconds, a minute that he spent with a little kid. From that day on, uh, I loved Roberto Di Vincenzo. That's a beautiful interaction, isn't yeah. it? To think yeah, about, it was it. just a nice, natural Wonderful. thing to do. Yeah, and I'm sure he did it with lots of kids. I hope he did. But as I say, you, you can make or break a relationship, change a life. Absolutely, really yeah. Can. yeah. And tell us about Lee Trevino. And Trevino, well. I, I'd seen Trevino at that Open. It's that, in fact, Trevino on the quiet. Trevino should have won that Open in 1970. Oh, Forget okay. Doug Sanders. Controversial take, yeah. Doug Sanders was playing with Lee Trevino in the last round, and Trevino finished, I think, two behind Nicholas and Sanders in that Open and three putted five times in the last round. Oh, ouch. That's what people forget. Yeah, absolutely. He should have won, and he won. We forget something about every tournament, don't we? That's true, yeah. Every yeah, tournament has somebody who's yeah, been I forgotten. I was watching who... on TV this morning the... Spieth winning the Open at Birkdale uh-huh. and there was things oh yeah, I, I forgot know, about that yeah, exactly so and that's only two years ago three years ago sounds like we're about to be evacuated yeah you mentioned Jordan Spieth indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, but, but Trevino um, that was the first time I'd seen Trevino it was 1970 he's in my autograph book about five times uh-huh. <laughs> kids kids that age were immediately drawn to him yeah. because of his you know certainly on course personality and then he won the Open the following year and then in 72 at Muirfield he won again um, famously chipping in at the 17th mm-hmm. green in the last round, and I was there. I saw that. I was actually Broke there. Broke Jacklin's heart, and you? I saw Doug Sanders miss the putt as well. By the way, <laughs> you're a, you're a real good omen. I, I know. Players must <laughs> love seeing you turn yeah, up to exactly, watch them. <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyway, the the following year, 1973, the Ryder Cup was at Muirfield, which is only about 50 minutes from my home. So, my dad and I went over. It was a practice day. The, the American team had flown into Prestwick on the other side of Scotland, which is what they did then. <laughs> so and then they no were, common sense yeah, involved. Then yeah. they were driven, you know, to Muirfield, and most of them quite sensibly went to their beds in the Grey Walls Hotel at the back of the tenth tee. But two guys didn't. Uh, it was J.C. Sneed and Trevino, and it was a kind of grey, drizzly, you know, not particularly a great day. But 
there must have been about 30 people watching and my dad and I were two of them and Trevino just put on a clinic I mean it was it stuck with me what's that 46 years ago uh-huh. now, and I can still remember it like it was yesterday I mean he was fantastic he just hit all these shots and there was what sticks in particularly in my mind was that there was a little wooden stick sticking it had been stuck in the ground and it was sticking up it was about 100 yards from where we were it was maybe two feet high and he goes right folks watch this so he gets his wedge out and he opens the face up and he carves it miles up in the air and it comes down poof, never moved it about two feet from the stick and then with the same club he pulls back another ball forward and knifes it deliberately along the ground you know two feet from the stick i mean that's genius and you don't yeah, i don't no. see too many people that can do that these days no. And is that where you got the inspiration for the sickening knee-high fizzer that you mastered well, later in life? I, I spent my uh, my playing life trying to get the club open at the top, and I failed. And that's why I'm a bad wedge player. So. John Hogan, it's been an absolute treat. I luckily will get to spend the next four days in your company, and again next week at the President's Cup, but I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. And I can confirm, people, Huggy is not a curmudgeon. He's a lovely he's – he's, <laughs> well, he's, he's as soft and gentle as a lamb. Uh-huh, yeah. Thank you, Huggy. My pleasure. Mate. Anytime. Now, you'd think that that was the end of the interview, and normally you'd be right. But as it turns out, Huggy is not only a vastly better golf rider than me, but also has announced for podcast interviews, which I clearly lack. As we stood up at the end of our chat, he casually mentioned that I hadn't asked him about the great Seve Biasteros. This was an oversight on my part for which I'll be eternally ashamed, and the only way to correct the error was to press the record button again and capture this. It's only the second time I've ever done this, Huggy. I've turned the tape recorder back on because you mentioned the magic word, which yeah. I forgot to yeah. bring up. I'm always trying to be conscious of time. Sevi, I'm just going to say Sevi, and I'm going to let you go. Talk about yeah, Sevi. Well, I was lucky enough. Um, I spent a fair bit of time around Sevi, um, especially when I went to Golf Digest. He, he was he'd been signed up. Um, in fact, two weeks after I went to America it was April 1988. Uh, I, I was back in an airplane flying to Spain to Padrena to do four or five days of instruction stuff. Wow. Um, Make you nervous, wouldn't it? It was fantastic. I mean, he was the best player in the world at the time. Um, he won, he, in fact, he won the Open uh, later that year at Lytham, famously. Um, but anyway, we, we did all the, the instruction stuff and he was great and he was friendly and he was, you know, he gave us as much time as we needed and all the rest of it. But the, the, we finished and the following morning we were going to play Padrena, uh, the coach. You and Sevi. And Steve Zurley, who was the photographer. Um, so the three of us were going to play. And we were going to, because we were, our flight was in the afternoon. We were going to drive off after lunch, whatever. So that's a, that arrangement is made. And we turn up the next morning and it's blowing an absolute gale. I mean, you could still play, but, and, and Sevi goes, well, I'm, I'm not going to play in that. And I don't blame him for a second. So anyway, Steve and I went out and we play all the way around. I, I, I'm not sure what hole it is. It's about the 15th or the 16th, uh, par three. And there's a big bank around the green, which, offered a lot of shelter so we get up on the tee we look up and and who's chipping and putting around the green but Seve and he sees us and he steps back and waves us up and I can <laughs> I can still remember standing over the ball thinking oh my god please god let me hit the green because the last thing I wanted was Seve watching me chip can you imagine yeah very uh, much so thank goodness I did hit the green but um and uh so Seve and Seve was great I mean and he and he he read a surprising amount because I, I, a couple of columns I wrote saying, lamenting the, you know, the scientific drift of the game away from the art, which he epitomized, obviously. And the, I made the point that the equipment 
mitigated against people of his talent level, especially the lofted wedges. Because mm-hmm. only used a 56 degree wedge. That's extraordinary, isn't it, to think about? And he could hit all those mm-hmm. shots that he could hit, and nobody else could. But then the 60 degree and all the rest of it came in, and suddenly that Never took away his done. edge to a great extent. And he, I wrote a column basically saying all that. And I remember he came looking for me in a press center once to thank me for it and saying, you're, you're right, you're right. What was he like, Sevi? You hear all sorts of he different stories about him. He was him. a rogue. I mean, hugely charismatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the most, apart from Tiger, would maybe be the most charismatic player I've ever come across. Completely different characters, he and Tiger, weren't they? Um, well, or, or were they? Well, well, <laughs> in know, some ways, obviously. I mean, I don't think Sevi quite had Tiger's lifestyle, but um, there were similarities yeah. in, in certain areas. Um, and maybe I can tell this now because Sevi's not around anymore, but I was at a tournament once and I was in a restaurant um, sitting there and I looked up and there was Sevi coming in with a with a lady, uh, not his wife, and he spots me and he and he comes across and he said, "I'm not here." <laughs> Fair enough, Sevi, but I got a good interview out of that because he, he owed me. He owed me. <coughs> Tip the tap. But, yeah. Mike Clayton says that the players in Europe in Sevi's era adored him. I thought that was a really interesting word. They adored yeah. him. I don't think they would say that about Tiger, would they? No. It, there was a love for Sevi that um, you know the other members of that era. You know, mm. the Valdo. Lyle was enormously popular, but nothing like Sevi. People say, "How do you compare Sevi and, and Nick Faldo?" Um, you can debate as much as you want who was the better player, but there is no debate over who was the most historically significant, and that, that's Sevi. I mean, Sevi was—they say that he—he he was the world's Arnold Palmer, you know, outside America. And it's one of the great shames, I think, is that um, America didn't get Sevi. They they used the, the did he get America as no, well? I don't it, think it was he... faults on both sides, yeah. undoubtedly. But um, the American press were I always thought were lazy. It was all the matador and this and that, and you know they never took the time to to get get to know him and make him comfortable there. And he could have been huge for that. What too. he could have done for them. I mean, yeah. Dean Beeman missed the point completely with Sevi, but which, which like, he didn't miss much, did he? Beeman actually, in hindsight, did no, a, but all the things that Sevi fought for back yeah. then. And now, and now, routine. Now. I mean, you know, he was right on almost everything, but Beeman fought him and shouldn't have mm. because Sevi would have been a better player and would have made a lot more money, which was important to Sevi, and the tour would have been enhanced enormously. I never saw Sevi play in person, obviously, but you would have known him. You watch the footage and you see that there's a childlike joy in what he's doing. There's a showing off element of look what I can do, and nobody, none of you others can do it. That's a great point because, uh, as I say, I did a lot. I wrote a lot of his instruction stuff for a while, and um, what, one time, what an insight that must we have were been. In Florida, honey. and we we're doing a, the short game thing, and he was just kind of getting warming up while the photographer was mucking around with these cameras and things and it was only from it was here to this door which is maybe what 20 yards yeah if that and he was hitting little chip shots like that and he would hit it it would skip once land and then come screw back about six inches on a shot that length and i I was oh man how did you do that and he just smiled and looked at me and then he did it again again could, just to, it was just to prove it was easy for him no one ever had hands i've often thought you might agree with this or you might not Tiger at his best, at his most charismatic, are in those moments when you see him playing and he takes the same childlike joy mm-hmm. in a shot that he's hit. And we yeah. n- we never get that Tiger away from the course, maybe a little bit more lately. But yeah. to me, that was always the appeal of Tiger is that you, you yeah. knew that, that those huge uppercut fist pumps, some people yeah. found them offensive, but there was a there's an exuberance there that he had no control over. All those guys have that. And, and you know, maybe I'm being a wee bit unfair to when I say America didn't get Sevi. The, the public... And the press didn't get Sevy, but the players, players did. Yeah. You ask, you get Phil Mickelson, sit him down and start 
just say Seve and he'll talk for an hour. He loved Seve and so did Tiger. Tiger I can still me- remember being at the Masters, whatever year it was back in the day, early th- for Tiger. And he played a practice. He played nine holes, first nine holes at Augusta National with Seve and Jose Maria Alathabal. And they were having contests, chipping contests. They would put a tee in the ground and go to the worst possible spot and see who could get it closest and all that kind of thing. And you could see Tiger watching it. And Tiger went off after nine holes. He disappeared. And I heard later, he admitted later that he went off to practice what he'd seen them doing. They were better at that than he was. And, but he was smart enough to watch them and learn. I don't know how true it is. I remember hearing a story about Tiger. I heard that it was he and Phil, but it may have been him and somebody else. But he challenged his other player to a $1,000 hole short game clinic, and he lost $8,000. And as he handed over, he says, it's the best eight grand I've ever spent because yeah. I've always wondered how you did that. Yeah. And the whole point was yeah. to be able to see it up yeah. close. But Phil, no, no one, no American player, I think, adored Savvy like Phil yeah. does. What is that electricity? Some players have There's a young young guy down here that plays, and I've written this many times. It's just my opinion. There's something electric about him, Min Woo Lee. When he stands over the ball, you you have a sense of anticipation. What's going to happen here? Yeah. Some players have that. Some don't. In fact, to be the best professional you could, that's the last thing you want. What you want people to think when you stand over the ball is, then, this is going exactly where he looks. But then he's, he's going to hit home runs in his career, and yeah. that's going to be what people remember. Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking that Sammy was guilty of this, and so was Sandy Lyle. Who were the two best? You know, they they would win five or six times a year at their peak. Didn't Savvy say Sandy was the best? Well, Sandy, yeah, Sandy was incredible for a very short period of time, but and by far the best player. But the thing was, that they both made the mistake and publicly said, "Well, I'm trying to be more consistent." Uh-huh. I think consistent is the most <laughs> overrated word in golf at that level. Why the hell would they? Those guys who could win five or six times a year and miss every other cut. Why would they want to be seventh? If they- <laughs> That's right. You know, nobody's going to remember that. It's funny. Tiger pointed to this earlier this year. He, people were asking about how the game's changed, you know, because he's been away for a couple of years, and the, the game certainly has changed those at the top. And he said the difference is that guys aren't trying to peak for certain weeks; they just go a hundred percent all the time. And sometimes that means you have a good putting week and you win, and other weeks it means you miss the cut. Yeah, they take, on but they don't care. That they, That's you know, right. Maybe back in the day they wouldn't have because the, the, the money wasn't there, and coming. Sixth or seventh meant you, you know, you got a nice check, and that was that was really what people were thinking about. They yeah. weren't thinking about winning, and there's still a lot of guys out there that their, their comfort level is such that, you know, they're quite happy to pod along and win, you know, 1.8 million dollars in a year and never finish higher than sixth and never put themselves well, under can, any real pressure. You can be a mediocre for that level PGA Tour player yeah. for ten years and have an extraordinarily comfortable I mean, I don't know life. About you, but every year I look at the, the money list the end and think, where did he win 2.9 million? 2.9 million, that's Never right. He barely heard of the <laughs> Exactly. So I wonder, I know Rory has said this, it's an interesting look into the human psyche. Essentially, he doesn't want what Tiger's got. He'd love to have the resume, but he does not want the life no, that comes with it. I don't envy Tiger's lifestyle either. I mean, it, I saw or Rory's for that Tiger matter in many ways. Media, I feel like it's peak, and it wasn't pretty. Mm. I mean, he had no privacy, no no way of getting from A to B without all, all kinds of hassle and ups. which makes that whole other part of his <clears throat> life extraordinary if you think about it. That he got away with that well, for as yeah. long as he did, being who he is. Exactly, that's quite bizarre. Yeah. Rory once sat here in Australia. I think it might have been 2015, 2014, 15, Might have been here at this this particular golf club. And at the time, he was going through that bust up with his management. It was that whole thing about his iPhone and backups in the cloud and all this sort of stuff. And something came up about it in the press conference, and he pulled out his phone, sat up here at this podium, and pulled out his phone, and he said, "I can tell you what I'm doing every day from now." Yeah 
until March next year. This was in November. He would have been 24, yeah. 24 25 yeah, at the time. See, no, I can't live like no that. No one would want that. No. no. Yeah. I'm sure built into that was Rory time. Yeah. Two hours here is yeah. Rory time. You can do what you want, Rory, but then you're expected here for a dinner and there for yeah, a business and, meeting. And Rory and can go and do things that Tiger couldn't. I mean, nah. the, 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 we talked about it earlier. I mean, the level of fame mm. was extraordinary for Tiger. And oh. I don't think we'll ever see another golfer no. on that level. Interestingly, possibly never another athlete. I listened to a really interesting podcast. Do you know Richard Gillis? You'd know Richard. I know who he is. Yeah, yeah he writes some fantastic yeah. He started a podcast called The Unofficial Partner, plug for, for Richard's podcast. And they did a piece, uh, uh, an episode about Tiger and Nike and that whole thing. And one of the panel participants, I can't remember who it was, said, we're unlikely that the Tiger and Serena Williams are probably the last two genuine global superstars, not because anything else has changed apart from the media you no longer have the giant cannons of media mm. that drove those two. Yeah. It's now so fragmented that it's likely impossible to get to that level That's of exposure, really which yeah. is a really interesting yeah. sort of take on yeah. on how the world's changed. So. I'm not sure I can agree completely because they were on such a level. And I think when you get to that, you're way up there. I'm not sure it, it matters what is the media is like. Possibly. Is it just yeah. performance? No, it's not. I mean, there, there was something about Tiger. I mean, he had a great name, didn't he? And he yeah, well, that helps, yeah. Sure. And, and again, enormously, you know, attractive to children. You know, I mean, yeah. he, people, the kids Young are drawn people. to him. Yeah. Like, you know, and Seve had a bit of that, and but nobody's ever had it like Tiger. Rory does it. Jordan has a little bit. Yeah, they do. Jason has it. Yeah. And Adam doesn't. Yeah, a little bit. It's funny, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think Adam Scott's. Fantastic for Adam, the game, and Adam yet Adam Scott's the, one of the nicest human beings yeah, you'd yeah. ever want to come. And people, across. people will tell you he's boring. Yeah, well, well nice is boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. at least so, he's authentic. Yeah, absolutely. he's not pretending. No, no question, Huggy. We're going to continue this conversation, but not for the listeners, just for us. Been great to have you, mate. Thanks very much. Okay, my pleasure. Well, there you have it. A peek into the mind of one of the best golf riders in the business, and what was for me, as you'd expect, given my chosen career path. An enormous privilege. You can find John's writings in many places, including each month in Golf Australia magazine, which if you don't yet subscribe to, you really should. Now make sure to come back next time for what will be a first, even for us, a chat with a major winner who doesn't play golf. Yes, episode 10 is a sit-down with tennis great Liz Smiley, or as she's now known, mum to reigning Australian junior champion Elvis. That's next time here on The Thing About Golf. Golf.